I, I would like to, to continue um, our discussion of Hebrews. Last week, you might remember Richard Q preached, and he told us about Hebrews chapter 11, which is in one way um, probably the most expansive discussion of faith in the whole Bible, really. In that chapter alone, there are like 40 verses or so, and it mentions the word faith well over 20 times. Um, in addition to that, this is interesting, uh, the author sort of backs up all of his or her claims about uh, faith by using this incredible um, plethora of different uh, figures from the Old Testament. It is enormous. Oh, I got blue. That's cool. Uh, nice. We have lights. Uh, so there, there is this whole slew of different, different verses that we see referenced in, in chapter 11. If you look at the beginning again, you'll, you'll see there's Genesis 1 in creation. There's Cain and Abel. There is Enoch. There's Noah. There's Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, uh, the Passover. They mention Jericho. And then in our passage, it continues this whole litany of figures uh, they mentioned Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David, Samuel, and then all of the prophets. There are all of these figures jammed into this one particular topic of faith. In other words, it's comprehensive. It's a comprehensive, fully-orbed treatment of what faith should look like. And so I think a suggestion here is that all of the Bible, all of the Bible involves faith. And I think if we're honest, sometimes we think of faith as kind of a, a, a New Testament thing. It's a, it's a kind of interior disposition of the heart. Maybe we even would say it's something that's kind of separate from our actions and works. Maybe deep down you think of faith as a, um, something that is, is only inaugurated in what Jesus has done. We don't have to worry about our actions anymore. We just have faith. And on one level, that is true, isn't it? Some of y'all did our uh, Essentials series on Ephesians. You remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot earn your salvation. There is nothing you can do to merit God's affection for you, but your salvation is given to you freely, not by your works, not by your effort, not by what job you have, but only by God's pure graciousness over you. It's great news. And yet, what this passage seems clear about as well is that we receive this gift, our faith, and the God who justifies us, and it will begin to do things in our lives. It is not inert, but it is active. It actually, I think, looks like something. That's what I think this author is trying to tell us and so that's what, in large measure, this whole passage is about. All of Scripture, this passage seems to suggest, shows us what faith actually looks like if we take it seriously. So that's simply what I want to talk with you all about this morning, is what faith looks like, why we would ever want it in the first place, and that's a more chat, we'll get to that, and then how you get it. Why you would want it and how you get it. So first what faith looks like. The first point, one of the immediate things you see in chapter 11 is this um, remarkable effort to describe what faith looks like. But of course, you'll remember even before that, and this is what Richard Q talked about last week, it defines faith. He says quickly, faith is an assurance 
and things that we have not seen. In other words, faith is a sense of certainty about things that are actually invisible. Uh, it sounds abstract. St. Augustine described this really well. He said, imagine you have a friend and someone says, can you really trust this friend? And you say, well, yeah, of course I can trust my friend. And they say, well, well tell me what this friend is thinking. Like, well, you can't do that. But you can certainly trust that if your friend says they're going to show up at 9 o'clock, that they'll do it. Why do you trust them? Because you have evidence. You have a relationship with them. You have an ongoing sense of, there's a credibility to, to that person that is not provable necessarily by knowing exactly what's going on in your, their head. Augustine says that's what faith is like. That's what faith is like, an assurance about something that you cannot prove. But what chapter 11 is actually more concerned with, I find this interesting, is not simply what faith is, but the contours of what it looks like. And basically, if you read through all of chapter 11, you'll notice that they quickly sort of fall into two main categories. First, there are all of those examples about people who believed God in incredible circumstances, and they got to do amazing things. Or they got to witness amazing things. The great example that he gives is uh, Jericho. You'll remember this. The Battle of Jericho uh, was a, a story where, where um, Joshua approaches Jericho. It's an impenetrable for fortress. He is called to, um, to take this city. It has been given to them by God. And the, the specific instruction is that they would march around Jericho day after day for seven days um, and I am not a general or a military tactician, but marching around a city with the Ark of the Covenant does not seem like a great strategy to me. Um, but that's nonetheless what they do. So they march around the, the fortress seven days. On the seventh day, they go to the gates, they blow a trumpet, and the walls fall to the ground. They didn't do it. They just showed up. They had faith. They got to watch God do incredible things even while they looked incredibly foolish. And so sometimes faith, while it is active on our part, God is the one true agent. That's what faith looks like sometimes. You probably have examples of this even in your own life. Now the second category that faith falls into, what it looks like, uh, it, it's a little more complicated, a little more sobering, you might say. Because after the author writes about all of these incredible things that these saints of the Old Testament got to witness, he immediately switches gears. He says in verse 35, some were tortured, others suffered mocking, some flogging, some chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, destitute and afflicted. He gives us this whole range of suffering that could potentially happen for those who would take up faith. So the suggestion here, I think, is that faith can look like obeying God, watching him do incredible things in your life or in the world, and it can also look like this incredible affliction or, or even just endurance. I think the great example here that he gives is probably Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you may know, is one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. He has one of the longest books in the Bible, in fact. And he prophesied in an age when the sin of Israel was rampant. And he told uh, the leaders, the powers that be, that uh, unless Israel stops sinning, destruction is, is on the horizon. And the priests of Israel, the leaders, the elite of Israel, despised him for this. And so their answer was 
to chain Elijah out and open for the public to laugh at. So they put a post in the ground, they chain him to the post, and they just leave him there. Turns out this was a bad idea. Because what happens is Elijah, excuse me, Jeremiah just keeps prophesying. Just pause. Think about the humility of that. Imagine if we suddenly decided that all of our most despised criminals should be chained in public for all of the world to see. There is an immense kind of visceral shame. Doesn't that make you sort of queasy even? And yet Jeremiah, even in that shame, continues to talk about God. Listen to what he says. This is what it says. If I say I will not mention God or speak any more in his name, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. You see, he couldn't not speak of God's work. His conviction, his faith, was embedded so deep down into his chest that he couldn't not say anything about God. He knew what his calling was. And so sometimes faith, I think, involves a kind of obedience that costs us. It costs us. Personally, I can't help but think of St. Lawrence here. I learned this from Chris Jones. He's the newest priest on our uh, clergy staff currently. And he uh, knows lots about saints. He was telling me that last week was the feast day of St. Lawrence. I did not know very much about, to be perfectly honest. But apparently St. Lawrence was uh, persecuted in the sort of original wave of um, persecution in the Christian world in the second century, sort of mid-second century under Nero. And what they did to him was they, um, they burned him over fire on a grate. And apparently he was, they put him on his back and, and then he cried out, I think I'm done on this side. <laughs> you turn me over. Point is, faith, faith sometimes costs us. It's an apocryphal story. Who knows if that actually happened? Faith, you see, faith can look like glory. It can also look like total dejection. It can look like glory or deje dejection. And when we step back, I think, just try to take stock of what faith actually looks like, we would say, I think, that it is certainly an internal conviction. We can't lose sight of that. But according to this passage and really all of these figures referenced in the Old Testament, it also has external consequences over us. That is, faith is not just a feeling, friends. Faith does something, and it's wonderful. However, it is worth asking, if this is what faith could do in your life, why in the world would you ever want it? Why would you want faith if it could involve giving up huge portions of your life, if it could cost you? And the answer that Hebrews gives is actually relatively simple. It says the reason that you would want faith is because there is no one, no one, as faithful to you or to God as Jesus Christ. Now, that, that might sound obvious to you, but listen to this passage. Listen to what the author says. It says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith and that he endured the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him, and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. What that means is a few things, but, but, but first, it's that Jesus Christ is the perfect, perfect example of what faith in God looks like. So if you and I, we want to see exactly what faith should look like, 
not only do you look to all of these saints who have gone before us, all of these Old Testament prophets and witnesses of incredible trust in God, but you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. Because for him, think about this, his faith is exactly like theirs. Remember, he is fully human and he is fully God. And so what that means is he has to maintain a faith and a trust in God exactly in the same way that they did and in the same way that you and I do. He doesn't have like an autopilot faith. (laughs) He has to do it himself just like we do. He has to learn to trust just like we do. His faith is exactly like the faith of every other prophet and apostle. And you'll notice he undergoes all of the same afflictions and more. Think about it. There's a public humility. There's the anxiety. There's the dread. There's the weeping. There's the suffering. And of course, ultimately, there is the death. See, he does all of that. When it says he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, it actually means it. But the difference here, and there's one main difference, is that Jesus is, per- he is sustained by a particular joy that he simply can't get out of his bones. And you know what that joy is. I think the easy answer would probably be heaven. Or maybe you'd think fellowship with God. Or maybe it's power sitting at God's right hand. But you see, friends, he already has all of that. All of that is already only ever his. You know what the joy is. The joy is you and me. The joy is us. That's what sustains Jesus Christ's faith. That's what drives his endurance. Think about it. Even as he endures the pain and suffering and the shame of the cross, the joy that draws him forward in obedience to God the Father, even despite Gethsemane, where he says, please take this away, the thing that propels him forward is a relationship with you. Isn't that amazing? And so when you consider why you might want to have faith or trust in Christ Jesus, the reason is clear. It's because there is no one, no one as trustworthy and as faithful as Jesus Christ. And he has proved it. He has proved it definitely, definitively on the cross. And you see this matters to you and me because you and I currently have faith and are tempted to have faith in all kinds of things and people. We do it all day, every day. But the problem is everything in a world that is broken like ours can ultimately uh, let you down, can't it? I mean, I see this happen pretty regularly. In fact, I, I am... Um, I am learning about the pa- more of the pastoral component of Christian ministry. I think this is my third year uh, as an ordained priest. And one of the things I would say, just in my general experience of engaging in pastoral ministry, is that the most kind of acute relational pain that people tend to experience um, comes from being betrayed. It comes from being betrayed. Typically, they'll describe this Um, sense of coming to trust someone or already having someone that they deeply trust in their lives who then does something or says something uh, that breaks that sense of trust. And the result here is this kind of, of, of woundedness that actually lingers in people's hearts and minds, sometimes even in their bodies, uh, for weeks and months and even years 
and years. This happens in both very dramatic ways, I think. It happens also in very mundane ways. But the result is typically twofold. The first is a sense that the wound you carry cannot be released. It's almost as if it is attached to you. You cannot let it go. And then second, there is a sense that you, you, you can't actually trust people. Nobody's really worthy of trust until you, you develop this general suspicion to others. And the ultimate result that often happens here is a kind of uh, relational uh, inaccessibility. People can't describe really how they feel or kind of where they are, where their souls or their hearts are. And then also a struggle to connect deeply with others. See this happen all the time. I have had this happen to me. But friends, you see, here, this is what the author of Hebrews actually tells us. Is that Jesus, in his moment of greatest pain, his moment, if you will, of greatest trauma, still only thinks of you. You remember the words he says from the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And the proof that this gives you and me is that Jesus in the midst of all of your fear of abandonment, all of your fear of betrayal, Jesus Christ will never, ever betray you. He will never, ever abandon you. And the reason that you can know that deep down in your core is because he has proved that to you by going to a cross, by being faithful both to God and to you. How? Because it cost him. Because it cost him his own life. So friends, if you ever, ever fear, betrayal, or doubt, you fix your gaze on Jesus. Now, how do you get faith? The reason you want faith is because it can give you stability and wholeness beyond measure. It can help you weather storms that you, you don't even know of yet. It can help you to endure things and pursue others sacrificially. That's why you have faith, but how do you get it? Don't have tons of time, but here's what he says, essentially. You cast aside every sin. Throw it all aside. His point is, you repent. Friends, you and I think of our sins as sort of neutral actions that are amoral or um, uh, impalatable, perhaps. But the word that he uses is it's, it's like a weight that a runner would carry as they try to win a race. You never win a race by carrying weights. And so he encourages us to throw aside our sins the reason you throw aside these sins, why? It's because your sins keep you from having faith in God. And the way you break that cycle, it's simple. It's not that you simply stop sinning. None of us can do that. It's that you confess your sins. You tell them to God. You open yourself up to who you really are. You say, God, this is what is going on in my life. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I feel like. This is what I cannot stop doing. And then you watch God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to renew your faith. You can have the smallest amount of faith, almost imperceptible, but if you repent, you begin the process of opening all of yourself to God the Father. I promise you, you will watch that faith grow, and it will give you resources you never thought you had, and it will help you sacrifice, pursue others, love, open up yourself to genuine relationship in ways that you never thought possible. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.